Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You know, the weather's getting warmer, so I, for one, am ready to say goodbye to my jackets and my sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I'm right there with you, Kate. And you know what I actually, actually, I donned double quince the other night. I've got to tell you. Okay. This is what's so great about quince because I feel like I have really been able to update my wardrobe like for the long haul without spending a fortune. I wore a gorgeous white tee, like a simple perfect white cotton t-shirt from Mm. Quince, but it was a little chilly out. So I threw on my cashmere hoodie also from Quince. Ooh. Mm -hmm. Okay. Like they have basically given me a lineup of timeless pieces that I feel like keep me looking. I'm going to toot my own horn. Effortlessly chic. Whether it's winter or or summer, they've got premium European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts from $30. You've got washable silk tops, really stunning 14-karat gold jewelry, and so much more. Like truly, the list goes on and on. And the best part is that Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. And they only work with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes, something that's very important to us. So look, if you're going on a trip, if you just need to update your summer wardrobe, Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash forever35 for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash forever35 to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash forever35. Hello and welcome to Forever 35, a podcast about the things we do to take care of ourselves. I'm Dori Shafrir. And I'm Kate Spencer. We are not experts. We are just two stunning, brilliant, (laughs) generous friends who like to talk a lot about serums. Wow. I'm back with the positive self-talk. That is the opposite of negative (laughs) self-talk. And I am here for it, let me tell you. Really try to work on my positive self-talk. I love it. And, you know, and also receiving compliments. Yes. Kate, you look lovely today. I'll receive that. (laughs) Thank you so much, Dory. I'm not going to talk down about myself. Thank you. I'm just going to accept it. Great. Thank you so much. How are you doing? Well, you commented on how clean my bathroom looked, so I'm going to say I'm doing pretty good because I have purged product story. 
Kate, I've seen your bathroom through many incarnations. <laughs> you have. <laughs> I've watched as the products seem to multiply, like literally like gremlins, like the hamsters that we oh, had God. when I was in fifth grade. Yep. Um, like one day there's one moisturizer, the next day there's forty, and they're eating each other. And they're eating. <laughs> so and the weird. big ones eating the little ones. Yeah. Um, you know, but your bathroom looks amazing. Well, I decided I, I had so many products that I did a really big purge. And I'm doing kind of like a, I don't want to call it like a garage sale, but I'm doing a sale of my like half used products that I've collected and I'm donating and matching all the money from it. So I'm going to donate it to a uh, progressive candidate here in California who I'm supporting. And who's that? Her name's Julia Peacock. Okay, great. She's an educator running for Congress. Ooh, yeah. That's so cool. So I was just trying to figure out ways that I could... Um, you know, one, spread products around mm-hmm. to people, uh, two, help kind of clean out my clutter. Yeah. And three, su- like get it, support candidates and get more involved. Cause I'm, I'm trying to do some phone baking and texting, but it's, it's, um, just challenging with my schedule and managing right. my kids and stuff. So this is my little way of doing it. Um, if you're a friend, well, you know what, this podcast will have aired probably after my purge is done, <laughs> but, um, Yeah. I'm take donating everything, matching everything. I love that. Hopefully we'll make an impact. Such a great idea. I have to tell you though, it is kind of funny, not funny, but like people have come over and, and like I have had those like mixed feelings of regret for getting rid of some of my products. Oh, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Cause I like everything I've bought for the most part, everything I've purchased for myself. I really like, it's just that I've gone overboard. Right. I've entered a dark place of having too many things. Right. And so what's your strat going to be going forward? I reintroduced my little spinny wheel, product spinny wheel back into my bathroom, but I have selectively curated what is in my bathroom Mm. and everything else I have put away and kind of stored. Um, so I have still not that many serums to choose. Like I'm, I'm sticking to a pretty, um, the, a consistent regimen rather than doing the thing I do where it's like one day I'm trying this and the next day I'm trying that I'm sticking to a lineup and I'm also trying to like measure the effectiveness of what I'm using. Great. Yeah. I'm feeling pretty good about it. And then do you think that you will rebuy stuff at the end of this? Like the I, stuff that you've run out of? Yes, I do. Okay. Well, it's, it might be a little too early on some of the things, mm. but I will give you a preview that I have been using a bottle of Vintner's Daughter for about a week, which was very generously given to us by the company. Yes. Thank you, Vintner's Daughter. Thank you, Vintner's Daughter. Uh, And I will be honest with you, Dory. I didn't want to love a $185 bottle of face oil. I don't blame you. Because that's a lot of money. Yeah. Even though um, after speaking to the founder, like they put a lot of, you know, effort and and quality. I also, I like that it's a woman owned company. Me too. Yeah. Uh, but I have to say, I feel like, I mean, I've texted you like 50 times being like, holy shit, my skin. (laughs) Now I'm also using the ordinary retinol, which I talked about Mm, on last week's episode. Which does not cost $185. No, it kind of balances out. (laughs) Also, and I didn't pay for this bottle either. So I'm complaining about price. I haven't paid for it, but I'm in a space where I'm like, oh my God, I like this. Am I going to have to do this again? Mm. So that's kind of what I'm dealing with. If you are, well, you know, a, you'll be able to see how long it lasts. That's what I'm, that's where I'm at. I'm just yeah. in an experimenting mode. Um, but for example, I used that last night and then I put my retinol on top of it because oh. apparently you're supposed to put your retinol on top of moisturizer mm. to help it sink in better. Mm. Who knew? I didn't Who know. Knew? Um, so, you know, 
that's where I'm at. Okay. I'm enjoying that product. You know, just trying everything, figuring out what works for me. But yeah, here I am. Well, I did notice that your bathroom looked great. The other thing I do want to tell you is yes. that I got this. Oh, thank you, by the way, okay. about my bathroom. You're welcome. I have been using a Makeup Forever BB cream sample mm-hmm. I got uh, from my old friend. Sephoris. Ms. Sephoris. Yep. And I love it. Oh. I know nothing about Makeup Forever. Do you use it? I've never used it. It's been around forever. forever. <laughs> <laughs> Are we going to collaborate with them and start Makeup Forever 35? Oh my God, genius. I mean, look, anywhere I can just combine the words forever. I, I've never tried their products. I just had this like random sample laying around and I did the color match that's available, I think on the Sephora website and, and I had the color. So I was like, okay, let's just try oh, this stuff out. cool. And my skin looked like a like just a dream pillow i'm not wearing it right now yeah but it was just mm -mm -mm. i have never gotten super into bb cream is this something i should get into i have to say i'm kind of coming back to bb cream okay a lot of times i i I just want like a little something on my skin plus most bb creams have spf in them which is really Mm. great so you kind of i don't have an spf moisturizer right i have a separate um sunscreen product so I kind of just like slapping it on, makes your skin just gives it kind of like evens it out, gives mm-hmm. it a nice look. And then you get your SPF in there. And a friend of mine, I'm going to forget the name. I have to look it back up. But a friend of mine recommended one that they love that I also want to try. But right now I'm just, again, trying to work through what I already own. So yeah. when I run out of everything I own, I'm going to sample some more BB creams. I think BB cream is a great way to go. It's yeah, not, it's not a foundation. It's just a little, I, you know, it's like, it's like I just missed it. You know what I mean? I do know what you mean. I just never got into it. I missed bralettes. I, my boobs are too big. I for mean, bralettes. mine are too, but you know how like all of a sudden all the world was yes. wearing like cool bras. Totally. And it was like, when did that happen? Yeah, I do. But yes, I mean, I'm in the same boob boat as you, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but yeah, I get, I get that. You were also, you were very committed to that Armani stuff. I was so committed to it. But maybe now is the time to maybe get Maybe now yourself... is the time that I haven't, I haven't been wearing foundation in months. I like, um, a sunscreen I use is Suntegrity and it's tinted sunscreen. So that's also an option. Okay. Just a little tint. All right. Good to know. As you like to say, a little zhuzh. A little, just, a, just a touch of zhuzh. Just a touch that's of zhuzh. all you need. How is it going over there, my friend, who is dealing with... Continued barf. Continued barf town over here. <laughs> you had a good like week. I did. I I this this fetus keeps tricking me into thinking that the worst is over. And then it's like <laughs> um we were in San Francisco last weekend to do this wired 25 thing for excellent adventure, and I threw up I woke up around midnight and threw up and I was like, maybe it was that, maybe it was because I didn't really eat enough at dinner. I just had, I didn't really have an appetite for anything that we, on the menu at the place that we went to watch the Red Sox game. Go Red Sox. (laughs) And I just had mashed potatoes and tomato soup and I threw up I was like, it was probably the dinner. Uh, It didn't feel great, but like, whatever. A couple, couple days go by exact same thing happens. I get up at midnight. I'm like, Oh no, I don't feel so good. I throw up. And then the same thing happened last night. So now it's been three times in the last like five days. So, and it's always at midnight. 
That's very eerie. It's, it's almost like really... you're a werewolf of barfing or something. <laughs> so I don't know what's going on. I mean, the the good news is that I don't feel that bad during the day. And my appetite has come back a lot. Like I'm eating a wider variety of things than I had been. So I'm happy about that. And I do sort of just like feel more like myself in general. Mm. But this weird midnight barfing is like not super fun. Do you feel frustrated when people refer to these early pregnancy symptoms as morning sickness? Like, I I feel like we've Um, been using the term pregnancy sickness, which is more... It's more accurate. Yes. Because I find it like one, you're throwing up in at night, yeah. but two, it's a continued feeling. It's not like yeah. you're sick from 6am to 10am and then everything gets better. Yeah. I, I don't get frustrated. I'm just sort of like, it's not morning sickness. It's like all the time, excuse me, all the time sickness. So, you know, whatever. My you're life, handling it. My life is fine. I feel so, I just feel generally so much better than I did like a month ago Good. that I'm like, okay, if like, if I end up barfing every other night at midnight, it sucks, but it's not as bad as not being able to get out of bed. Yes. No, you are, you know, yes, you have it in perspective. It sounds like. Yeah. So I'm trying to keep it in perspective. Um, so that's kind of where I'm at physically. I've also been going to prenatal yoga, which I enjoy. At your prenatal yoga class, does everyone go around and share how far along they are? And like, are the, I remember when I went like the 41 weekers were like the seniors, like oh, the totally. cool seniors and then like us new pregnants were like the freshmen. Well, the first class I went to, someone had brought her like two and a half month old baby oh. and she was, cause she was like a graduate of the class. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, so that class there were actually a lot of people at and really ran the gamut from someone was eight weeks to like 39 weeks. And then today there was a smaller class and, but someone was like 39 weeks and also someone was 31 weeks with twins. Wow. Cool. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so that was nice just to kind of like see other pregnants and also be like, okay, the way I'm feeling is not weird. Yeah. It's comforting to be around yeah, other pregnants. Totally. And also, you know, having gone through all this IVF and infertility, I do kind of like this feeling of like, oh, well now I'm just another pregnant person. That's interesting. You know, you're like blending into the crowd, almost. blending into the crowd. I don't have to like start my story <clears throat> by being like, I did IVF for two years. It's just like, no, I'm 13 weeks pregnant. Yeah. Have you met any other friends who are pregnant via IVF? Have you connected with anybody? Um, I have a close friend who does not live here, but she is also pregnant via IVF. And then I have another close friend who is pregnant with, um, she's exactly my age. She did three rounds of IUI and she's about to start IVF and then she got pregnant, which are those like one of those like annoying miracle baby stories that like you hate, but because she's such a close friend of mine, like I'm so happy for her. And she was just as like shocked as everyone else. Wow. Um, so she is also pregnant, which is nice. We text. She's not, she's also, she also doesn't live here. Um, so yeah, so I feel like I'm, and you introduced me to some of your pregnant friends. I did send an email out titled yeah. cool pregnants. Yeah. And we've, everyone has chimed in. Oh, good. And we're sort of all like, so excited to meet you all, but no one's like actually it's, you know weird. I mean? it's, it's weird. It's also weird to be like, here, a bunch of people, you all know me and you're pregnant. Bye. But I do feel like, you know, it's nice to just kind of have that. Um, 
And yeah, so it is, you know, I, I guess I'm like about to enter my second trimester. So it's like really starting to feel like, okay, this is like actually happening. Um, in other family news, we went to Bo, my dogs. (laughs) Uh, I've not forgotten about Bo. We had an appointment with his veterinary behaviorist yesterday. Um, it was supposed to be just like a follow-up appointment, but I brought up you know, that we're having a child. My vet is also pregnant. Gosh, just um, everybody. And it was actually really good because I am nervous about the whole situation and getting yeah. Bo acclimated. And I think Matt, he, he was just sort of like, I think his attitude is generally like, Bo will do great. And it's like, he might, but we have to like get him there. And so I think it was really good for him to hear from the vet, like, no, like you, you know, you, you probably can't have them in the car at the same time. Oh, interesting. Like you can't, you know, just like forever. Or is it just kind of getting the dog acclimated to the baby? I think she is like, she's pretty strict of just like, you don't want to put the dog in a situation that could end up badly. And then she was like, and you know, if you're, if you're walking Bo, like one person can't push a stroller and walk Bo. Oh gosh. Yeah. That seems very hard. And if you walk him together, Bo has to be behind the baby so that if he freaks out because he sees the dog in the neighborhood that he doesn't like. He has an enemy in the neighborhood. He has, he has one real arch enemy, this like medium sized fluffy white dog. (laughs) It's like the least threatening looking dog you could ever imagine. Bo hates it. Bo goes ballistic when he sees this dog. Like it's bananas. And there are two other dogs in the neighborhood who he also dislikes, but slight to a slightly lesser degree. This other dog, he just goes insane. And so, and a couple times in his efforts to get to this dog, he's inadvertently sort of like nipped the person who's walking him. And so her point is like, you don't want him to freak out and he's not going to deliberately be trying to attack the baby, but you don't want anything to happen. Don't put him in a situation. Don't put him in a situation that's going to be bad for him. So I think that was good for Matt to hear. It it is a lot introducing a pet to a child. A lot. I mean, I had to do it with an eight pound cat and that was a thing. Yeah. And the cat was resentful. Right. And so so a big dog. Yeah. So, you know, and there's going to be people coming in and out of the house. And so, you know, the thing that she's been telling us for like a year, which we have not done is muzzle. Like we have to muzzle train him so that he gets comfortable wearing a muzzle, you know, in any situation. And we just haven't been consistent about it. And she was like, you gotta do it. Oh boy. So I think that finally has like sunk in. And you have like a deadline. And we have a deadline. Right. Like we have you, a hard deadline. Right. So that I think it was a a productive, um, a productive meeting. Well, you you are good pet owners. Thanks. But pet ownership is no joke. No, it's not. Yeah, it's a lot of work sometimes. And dogs are complicated. They are. They really have spirits of all their own. They really do. (laughs) And Bo, you know, our vet is always like, he's come so far and that's a testament to you guys. And, you know, he's really smart, but like, he's really smart. 
and sometimes the smarter dogs are like the harder ones yeah, to deal yeah. with. She's like, I have a big, dumb golden retriever. <laughs> I mean, you see what I'm dealing with over here. Um, so yeah, it's just like another one of those things that I'm like, okay, that's a thing. Yeah. That's adding it to your list. Yeah. yeah adding it to lot. the list. So <sighs> should we take a short break? Let's do it. Okay. You know, Dory, we talk to a lot of really fantastic, intelligent people on this podcast. But I don't know, maybe you're like us and you want to go even deeper. Mm, I'd love to go deeper. We like to go deep. And that's not only possible with today's sponsor, but also easy to accomplish on Masterclass. Every year I get really into the classes offered and the instructors offering them. Like I'm all over the place with the things that I like on Masterclass. But this year, I am very interested in the class Redefining Feminism, which is 14 lessons from Gloria Steinem. Okay. Now, they dissect issues women face in the U.S. and ways we can play a role in the feminist movement in our everyday lives. Look, I majored in women and gender studies in college. So, this is right up my alley. But even if you didn't, even if you're like, this is the first time I'm I hearing mean, those words. I would argue, especially if you didn't. Yes. Get into it with Masterclass because this is the year you can really learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Go from just talking about improving to actually doing the things you've been wanting to do with Masterclass. And it doesn't have to be Redefining feminism with Gloria Steinem. It can be gardening in your own garden or your yard or patio. It can be learning to cook Indian food or designing a space that you love. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors. So whether you want to master like negotiation with Chris Voss or think like a boss with Martha Stewart or maybe capture your vision through photography with Petra Collins, Masterclass has you covered. With Masterclass, you get unlimited access to intimate one-on-one -on -one classes with the world's best. And right now, our listeners will get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash F35. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash F35. That's masterclass.com slash F35. Kate, I feel like we are like barreling into summer. It's happening so fast. It is. And I feel like also with summer just come more social events. There's weddings. There's nights out. It's vacations. I mean, it, like all the things happening in summer. And what I love is that Honey Love has just the right thing for all those events. Feel comfortable and confident this summer with Honey Love's best-selling Superpower Short. The Superpower Short smooth shapes and lifts, giving you a flawless silhouette under any outfit with targeted compression technology that distinguishes between areas where you want more support and areas you need less compression. It's designed to work with your body, not against it. Speaking of working with your bod, the crossover bra, which I'm wearing as we speak. I wear that my, thing every day. I do too. Uh, it's my favorite Honey Love piece. Let me, let me just tell you why. Yeah. Get okay, into it. Hey, do you want to tell me why? <laughs> no, no. I was just going to say like, I, I, I don't even need to wear it to events. I wear it like the event is every day of my life. Yes. 
That's such a good way of putting it. The bra gives all the support of traditional bras without using any underwires. And just like sidebar, I have put on some of my old underwire bras lately and been like, oh, God, like get this off of me. No, thank <laughs> once you. you. Once you start wearing Honey Love, you're just like, no, not yep. going back. You see how also, it could like, be. Yes. Also, like summer sweat under those underwires is like, ugh, the worst. Now you don't have to worry about it. Get the support you need with the comfort you deserve and treat yourself to the best bras and shapewear on the market. Save 20% off at honeylove.com slash forever. Use our exclusive link to get 20% off honeylove.com slash forever. After you purchase, they'll ask you where you heard about them and please support our show and tell them we sent you. The summer vibes are just getting started. So shape your life with Honey Love. You know, the weather's getting warmer. So I, for one, am ready to say goodbye to my jackets and my sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I'm right there with you, Kate. And you know what I actually, actually, I donned double quince the other night. I've got to tell you. Okay. This is what's so great about quince because I feel like I have really been able to update my wardrobe like for the long haul without spending a fortune. I wore a gorgeous white tee, like a simple perfect white cotton t-shirt from Mm. Quince, but it was a little chilly out. So I threw on my cashmere hoodie also from Quince. Ooh. Mm -hmm. Okay. Like they have basically given me a lineup of timeless pieces that I feel like keep me looking. I'm going to toot my own horn. Effortlessly chic. Whether it's winter or or summer, they've got premium European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts from $30. You've got washable silk tops, really stunning 14-karat gold jewelry, and so much more. Like truly, the list goes on and on. And the best part is that Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. And they only work with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes, something that's very important to us. So look, if you're going on a trip, if you just need to update your summer wardrobe, Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash forever35 for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash forever35 to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash forever35. You know, one thing I think is really kind of interesting about skin, my skin, but all skin, is that like, what it needs now in my 40s is not what I needed in my 30s. Totally. Definitely not what I needed in my 20s. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But like, how are you supposed to know what your skin needs? It's hard. It's hard to know. Especially when there's just like so many products out there. The overwhelm is real. It's a struggle to even know how to get the results you want, what products to start with. This is why we're super excited to partner with Apostrophe. Apostrophe is a prescription skincare company that offers science-backed medications that are clinically proven to help. I have used Apostrophe. I love it. They will pair you with a board-certified dermatologist 
who literally creates a personalized treatment plan for your skin. I have done this a few times now. It is so easy to do their online consultation. You upload photos. And like within a few weeks, I had done the consultation and received my treatment plan and my product. Amazing. And that is how I became a tretinoin gal. I love the tretinoin that they sent me. I love their sunscreen. Both products have been amazing on my skin. And you, Forever 35 listeners, can get a special deal from Apostrophe. You can get your first visit for only $5. That's at apostrophe.com slash forever35 when you use our code forever35. Now that is a savings of $15. I like that. This code is only available to Forever 35 listeners. So to get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash forever35 and click get started. And then use our code forever35 at sign up and you will get your first visit for only $5. Thank you, Apostrophe, for sponsoring this episode. Our guest today is Rebecca Traster. Welcome, Rebecca. I'm so pleased to be here. Um, I'm just going to read a quick bio so everyone knows who you are, if they don't already, which I feel like they probably do because you come up in our Facebook group all the time. (laughs) Um, Rebecca Tracer is the author of the new book, Good and Mad, The Revolutionary Revolutionary Power of Women's Anger. She is a writer at large for New York Magazine, a National Magazine Award winner, and she has written about women in politics, media, and entertainment from a feminist perspective for The New Republic and Salon, and has contributed to The Nation, The New York Observer, The New York Times, The Washington Post, Vogue, Glamour, and Marie Claire. She's the author of All the Single Ladies and the award-winning Big Girls Don't Cry, and she lives in New York with her family. Hi. Hi. Hello. Hi. We're so happy you're here. <laughs> and her new book is truly a masterpiece that everyone should read. Yeah. And might I suggest men read it? Yeah. Yeah. That was when I was writing it and my husband was reading it. He was like, he's like, I want men to read it. I'm going to like, I want men, men need to read this book. I'm learning so much. And I was like, good luck, honey. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I say this on our podcast, which is our, I think our audience is predominantly women identified, but you know what? Share it with a man, you know. Yeah. I will say that the men who have read it, in addition to my husband, um, actually have liked it. Like it's not, you know, it's, it's, there's nothing in it that they shouldn't, that they wouldn't like, actually. I think that the men that I've spoken to, obviously a self-selected group of people who have gone out, read my book, and then contact me. (laughs) Fair, fair. Um, They've, they've been largely positive, but in a good, I mean, they've said that it's, it's, um, it's helped them understand what's happening around us differently. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about the genesis of the book? And you so you say in the book that you had gotten the book deal, and then Me Too happened, mm-hmm. and then you wrote it in four months. Yeah, well, it was it it was the the disjuncture of that was even more intense. I I thought of the book. I thought of like looking at the world, considering it via the sort of through line of women's anger, meaning looking at American history and the history of social and progressive movements in this country, looking at our contemporary political situation, and looking forward through the but thinking about women and the and their anger and the pressures on us not to express it, mm-hmm. the censure that we get when we express it, the backlash that that comes our way, and the way that even despite all that, women's anger has been so catalytic mm-hmm. in terms of the transformative movements that have sort of reshaped the nation. And I thought of that 
in January, like right Christmas, New Year's, 2016, 2017. And I was like, I'm going to write this book. This is, and suddenly it's like everything clicked into place. These are issues I've been writing about for years in my journalism and even in some of my other books without ever thinking of it as anger being an organizing right. principle. Oh my God, this makes so much sense. Terrific. I went out, I got the book deal. So the the idea for the book and really me jotting down notes that is they're kind of the outline of what turns out to be the book. That's January. It's in advance of the Women's March that I okay. think I'm going to do this. The Women's March, then the next week there are the airport protests, which uh-huh. are, you know, dominated by women and the public interest lawyers, 60% of whom are female in this yeah. country, um, sort of pushing through some of the legal obstacles to the Muslim ban that Trump puts in place. Then there's the health care fight that spring, um, where, of course, the activism came from so many women writing postcards and making calls and applying pressure to the senators enough that they voted not to repeal the ACA. Then the historic number of women running for office. So this is all happening. And, and the plan when I got the book deal was I'm going to write it during the Trump administration. I'm going to write it slowly. I have a full-time magazine job that I can't afford to like take time off from. I, I'm going to write it on the side over a few years and sort of try to get this history right and try to look at how it corresponds to what's happening. And as this, as I'm thinking I'm going to do this in a small way or, or, a, or a small way in my daily life, these, the history and the present politics are happening and mm. boiling all around us. And then... In the fall, after the Harvey Weinstein story, at the sort of peak of the flood of Me Too stories, I was like, you know what? I just have to write this quickly. Mm-hmm. Because there was such intensity. And even now, now that it's the year anniversary, yeah. I find that I've forgotten the visceral feeling of what that period was like, mm-hmm. right? I don't know if you remember it or if you experienced it in a way that was similar to how I experienced it. Yeah. But it was like a 24-hour stomach ache for for three or four months, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and just like feeling like your eyeballs and your earballs and your ears were bleeding, like this is, you know, it was just so painful and also so urgent and so necessary from my perspective yeah. and so complicated. I mean, you wrote so powerfully about the complications and the and the nuances and the contradictions. And I was like, I have to like this feeling, I have to capture it because everything in us makes us repress what those things were like, yeah. right? Anyway, then I decided I had to write it quickly. So I took four months off of my job and wrote it from February to June in wow. 2018. Wow. That's amazing. Oh, I, I want to just go on the record as saying as I'm very mad. <laughs> and there's a, there's a moment in the book where you talk about um, the ways in which like women have – tried to tamp down their anger by saying they're turning it into activism, mm-hmm. yes. which as I was reading that, it was just like looking in the mirror mm. and it was um, unsettling in the ways that I've still I just, it made me reconsider not just anger on a cultural level, but how I've managed my own anger and not revealed it. And it was very eye-opening. This is not a question. This is just me having therapy because... It was very profound reading about that. Well, I had to do reckoning with my own, the trajectory of my career, because when Mm. I first started writing about feminism, and this was not, I don't, I don't feel shame about this. I don't even feel like it was a strategic error. Mm. But when I first started writing about feminism in days when it had been like just a, like a frozen tundra of anti-feminist backlash within a mainstream media Right. Like there was Cathapollet at the nation and like, yeah, that was it. And a lot of younger people won't remember that, which is a good thing. It's not like you don't remember when I had to walk a mile. But like, no, it's good. Right. Yeah. That, that, but that was the era in which I had grown up. I'm 43 years old where there just wasn't any mainstream yep. feminism in your from your newspapers or your morning shows or whatever. And um, 
in the time that I first, you know, 2003, 2004, I first started writing about feminism in pretty rudimentary ways, like unschooled. I'd never taken women's studies classes. I didn't know anything about women's history. I didn't know anything about the history of the feminist movement. Like I'd studied literature from a feminist perspective. So I knew some feminist theory and that was about it. (laughs) And, um, it was very rudimentary feminism, but I'm also very conscious of the fact that I made it like Mm-hmm. and like witty and and that doesn't mean it can't be those things like again yeah. i'm not disavowing that but i took great pains and i think that many of my contemporaries did as well to make sure that a revived feminism of the 21st century was like going to be different from the caricature that had been applied to the last big iteration of the women's movement which is the 1970s which we call the second wave Um, And which had been characterized, even though that movement also had all kinds of nuance, complexity, Mm -hmm. internal disagreement about its its trajectory, humor, like foul-mouthed, profane, Mm. vulgar hilarity. Like it had just been written off as angry old bats, right? And I think that a generation that wanted to return to a feminist conversation took great pains, and I include myself here, to like make sure we dressed up the raw anger as not anger, as like – good-humored, like, irony. and um, yeah. Well, you mentioned the cool girl trope yes. in your book, and that really rang true for me. I mean, I'm only a couple years younger than you, so I, I feel like I experienced this as well. And, you know, as we were kind of coming of age, there were even websites like Jezebel and Broadly, you know, were cool feminist websites and just mm-hmm. took such pains to be. And I love those yes. websites. Right. Um, but there was definitely a point of view that separated them from what had come before. Right. Right. And and again, right, A, those things, in, in part, the error is not acknowledging that there was some of that spirit in what had come before too, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So that's part mm-hmm. of what yep. backlash then, if, if the women doing, reviving feminism were trying to obscure the anger, the backlash had obscured the good humor and the joy and the liberation that had been right. attached to that feminist anger in the second wave. Um, so A, I wasn't even seeing, again, I wasn't, I hadn't read enough about it. I hadn't read the actual people writing. My God, if you read Vivian Gornick writing about second wave feminism, it is like the language, it's language about anger that is language about love and connection mm. and the liberation of finding shared frustrations and resentments with with other people who share your political sensibilities and not feeling isolated in the world or, or stifled in your anger. That is like some joyous release. If you watch Flo Kennedy, if you, I mean, a woman who I knew relatively little about. Um, a black feminist lawyer, you just watch The Year of the Woman is a great documentary, but Flo, there's all kinds of footage of Flo. A fucking hilarious woman. Um, you know, there was so much of that life and joy and humor in the second wave. So but we, growing up, yeah. no, no one had ever directed us to the good parts. Like feminist killjoy. They were just yes. feminists. Yeah. Right. Man-hating, sexless, yep. you know, Feminazi. anti-fun feminazis, right? And so... And and the the dressing up the next generation as fun. So again, it's not inauthentic. There was good humor right. and wise ass irony and like and there were there are questions to be had about like heels and makeup and all this stuff, right? Mm-hmm. But but the thing that was tamped down was the fury that runs alongside yeah. all of that. That was the thing that was consciously obscured. And I think I I did that. I didn't want to sound too angry because I know we all know if you sound too angry. Not only will people think you're an unfun, sexless harridan or whatever, but like it will undermine your ability to make the point. So if you're invested in making the argument 
And you know instinctively in your bones, because you've been taught it since you were a baby, that if you yell or if you express ire in an unapologetic way, people won't listen to you. Mm -hmm. And so it will hurt your point. Mm -hmm. I mean, and this is the, that's like the Christine Blasey Ford dilemma, right? She could never, we all know that she could never have raised her voice or yelled or snarled or talked back to somebody in the way Brett Kavanaugh did, because it would have meant that nobody believed her. Yeah. And whereas men and white white men and especially powerful white men get to use anger to amplify the seriousness of their points. Right. Got to take this microphone and just start pounding it into <laughs> my head. Um so one question we have is that how can how can women come to recognize our rage as valid and as rational and not as what we are constantly told it is, which is like ugly, hysterical, laughable, unseriousness. Um, as, as you, you write. Right, yeah. right. <laughs> so We're quoting. <laughs> so a big part of it, I think, is about we put so much pressure on ourselves as individual women about how we um, recognize, give voice to express or repress our anger. Right. So that's, and that's just an every day. That's like going to the grocery store. Like don't, don't yell at the person like who bangs the cart into you or whatever. Right. Like it's right. we're it's, there's so much focus on how we ourselves express or don't express our feelings. So part of what I've come to think of is, I guess my anxiety about the sort of direction toward individual women about what do you do with your rage or how do you recognize it or use it or or give voice to it is it just adds to the number of instructions that we're given all the time about mm-hmm. like, you know, what tone to use and what tone not to use and all of that. And that fundamentally, all of those instructions are basically how to how to move through and how to successfully move through a system that's not built for us anyway. Mm -hmm. And how do you navigate and rise up through a structure that makes no room and has no respect for or interest in women's anger? And it's just telling us all individually how to navigate that structure when the real thing is what we have to do is we have to change the structure and we have to change the system. And that's about how women's anger is received. And so the thing that I, to the degree that there's something prescriptive in this book, it's not about how we as individuals express our own rage, although there are lots of ideas about that that you might find in the book. It's about starting with changing the way other women's are, changing the way women's rage is received, which is about us as some of the receptors of that way, yeah. rage. So it's about being curious about why the women around you are angry asking. And then that stuff, like how do we take it seriously as rational? How do we how do we treat it as valid and politically consequential? Treat the anger of the women who you talk to, who you work with, who are your friends or in your family. Treat that. Be curious about it as politically serious, instructive anger. And that's part of how – start hearing the anger around yeah. you differently because that's part of the system that's so broken is how how quickly the reception of that anger gets written off. It's mobs. It's loud mouths. Look at the words that have been used in the Senate to talk about the protesters, hysteria. But if masses of us who feel anger begin to recognize it in the people around us, 
and treat it as a way to connect to those other people, Mm -hmm. which, by the way, as a side effect, may permit us to give voice to our own anger more Mm -hmm. easily, too, right? right? Because that's one of of the things I want to reclaim about anger. And it's not to say that it doesn't have all kinds of destructive and divisive and, you know, sort of combustible aspects to it. But it can be an incredible connector between people. Giving voice to anger makes us audible to each other. So that's not just about giving voice to our own anger so another woman can hear us. It's about hearing the other woman Mm -hmm. and moving toward her and saying, why are you angry? And really listening to her response. Not that you have to agree with everything. In fact, some of what she says you might not agree with. Some Mm -hmm. of it may be anger at you. Mm -hmm. And it's listening to that, taking it seriously. Think for a second about the way that the mainstream media treated the anger of the white working class man in the Rust Belt, right? There was correctly, and I'm not saying that this is the wrong approach. I'm saying this is the right approach, right? The political media diagnosed after the election the fact that Hillary Clinton had not taken seriously enough the anger of a white of the white white Rust Belt, Belt voters mm-hmm. who were often envisioned as male or women who were interested in in um, the declining status of those of those white men, and that their anger was treated as diagnostic. Look at what their anger should have been telling us about changing technology and job loss and economic inequality and opiate addiction, right? And that's all true. That anger does point to those problems that need to be fixed. That is the correct approach to anger in a political context. We don't afford any other kind of anger that same consideration as if it like might be diagnostic and might point us toward inequities that should be addressed by our government and society. Mm -hmm. And so that's the thing I would like to change is if we could hear other angry voices as being instructive to us. Mm. Especially, I'm sorry. Oh, no, go ahead. I was just going to say, especially women of color. Yes. Like we, I mean, I I just think in terms of being an ally as a white woman, it's hearing and validating anger. Well, I thought the way you wrote about race was really thoughtful um, and empathetic. And um, you wrote, when black women push back against the white women who come in and take up a disproportionate amount of space, when their own complaints about race complicate a women's movement, it is too often black women who are framed as the ones being divisive. This dynamic was reflected in the coverage of the Women's March conflicts in which black women letting white women know that they had not invented political resistance to white patriarchy were viewed as somehow inhospitable. And I just thought, you know, this is something that I think we think about, and but it often seems like a like an unbridgeable divide. And I mm-hmm. thought you pointed out really well that it's not. Well, I think that I think that the question of whether coalition is possible and can be productive remains an open one, and it's always been an open mm-hmm. one, right? And it's up to the people who are trying to participate in those, those coalitions to figure out whether it's possible to move forward productively. Audre Lorde's writing in the 80s in her famous mm-hmm. essay, The Uses of Anger, that anger between women about racial inequality within a women's movement is itself productive, generative, that it can mm-hmm. provide energy to move forward if we give full voice to it and if we're willing to listen. And that means by listening, we're talking about white women? Are we willing to listen about the ways that we participate in and profit from white supremacy in ways that have historically and continue to divide us from our our the women who would be our allies and, in fact, our leaders in thought? I mean, that's mm-hmm. the thing. It's not just about alliance. It's about looking to women of color who have often been the people who laid the intellectual, legal, legal organizing groundwork for social movements, looking to them, acknowledging them, 
as leaders and the people from whom we may learn. Yes. I have learned so much mm-hmm. about power structures from the black women who have written the books that have that have taught me about how these power structures replicate themselves within coalitions. Yeah. So this is so it's it's partly seeking to find leadership instruction being aware of how having more power and benefiting from white supremacy and an adjacency to to white men within a white patriarchy yeah. affords white women um an ability to take over spaces that in fact have been built by women of color. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So so that's part of the awareness. The um the other thing I would say about that that we we need to think about the person actually speaking of people who've taught me about the issues that I write about and that I'm talking about now, Brittany Cooper is one of the mm. one of um, the best and most electrifying thinkers on the the history of social movements and Black women within intellectual and social movements. Um, she also wrote this book this year called Eloquent Rage, that is um, like. It's incandescently good. It's Mm -hmm. so good. Um, And she has been the person who has taught me more than anybody about something that is is very useful in my mind and thinking of how these things work. So if white patriarchy is fundamentally minority rule, right? White capitalist patriarchy is fundamentally a minority group, one man, given disproportionate power over a majority, legally, politically, economically. um, And how does minority rule maintain itself? If you have a majority that could theoretically team up and overthrow that minority, mm-hmm. minority rule maintains itself by dividing the majority against itself. Well, how do you divide a majority against itself? You offer certain benefits to certain segments of that minority that cut them off in some way from the rest of that uh, from the rest of that majority. So to men across races is offered patriarchy, right? Patriarchal power within relationships, within families, within workplaces, economic power. Um, and and that makes certain numbers of men more likely to support a power system from which they benefit. Right. White supremacy is offered to white women. And white women, whatever their politics, benefit from and uh, and get incentives to defend in some way and continue to participate in a system that affords them power. Yeah. And one of the things that Brittany Cooper has always pointed out to me is that one of the reasons that women of color have often been the groundbreaking thinkers is because they were never offered incentives to not challenge the power structure, mm-hmm. right? There's none of that power on offer to them. Right. And so they have had the space and the, in fact, the incentive to work to break up that power structure, which means they have often been the leading thinkers. And yet we don't know about them. We don't know about Polly Murray, right? Polly Murray is a gender nonconforming woman of color who in the mid 20th century does some of the writing, so writing on both racial discrimination law and gender discrimination that is so forward thinking and so revolutionary that she winds up in later years being credited by both Thurgood Marshall and Ruth Bader Ginsburg for having laid the groundwork for the kind of legal decisions that they're making. And yet we don't know her name. It's just Mm -hmm. not commonly known. And so part of what we do also in terms of what do we do about, you know, learning to take anger seriously is to go back and learn some of the history Mm of some of the work done by women who were perhaps catalyzed by their own anger at inequity. And that anger got them up 
and and moving toward making change in the world and how its rules work and how its laws and policies work. You know, we have been delving more and more into the topic of our skin as we get older and how we treat it and how we love it. Because look, as I'm learning in my mid-40s, as you get older, you deal with new things when it comes to your skin. Not that they're bad. They're just new. You know what I mean? Like I am now just discovering creppiness, Dory. Mm, okay. Which is okay. I know. visible on my <sighs> neck and chest. Luckily, it's a thing. It's a thing. Luckily, OneSkin, our sponsor today, knows all about things like creppiness. And I'm not overly concerned with aesthetics, but like I do just want to keep my skin healthy as I age. Totally. I love their topical supplements. They really help your skin feel, I don't want to say younger, but just vibrant, Mm. refreshed. They combine tissue engineering, data analysis, and cutting edge longevity science to literally create the world's most effective product to help with skin aging. I am particularly fond of their face topical supplement. It's essentially a moisturizer, but it has their Mm -hmm. proprietary OSO1 peptide to really help with all the parts of our skin that are exposed to environmental damage. You can use it on your face, your hands, your neck. I know here Mm -hmm. where we live in Los Angeles, our hands, we're driving. That sun is coming at us at all times. OneSkin believes the Amen. purpose of skincare is not just to improve how we look, but to optimize our skin biology so that it is more resilient to the aging process. They really create next level skincare. OneSkin is the world's first skin longevity company. By focusing on the cellular aspects of aging, OneSkin keeps your skin looking and more importantly, acting younger for longer. Get started today with 15% off using code OVER50 at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code OVER50. After you purchase, they'll ask you where you heard about them. And please support our show and tell them we sent you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Um, I'd love to talk about anger and Me Too Mm. Um, because... What you wrote about kind of reconciling the good guys, and I say that in quotes, Mm -hmm. um, that we know who, as you write, can be our husbands, our brothers, our favorite coworkers, Mm -hmm. um, with the fact that some of them are also bad guys, Mm -hmm. I think has been a big reckoning for a lot of women. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm just, I, I was wondering if you could talk about your own experience with that and kind of where do we go from here a year into it? Some of the most intense exchanges that I had um, during those months that were sort of the peak 
of Me Too in the fall of 2017, and I don't mean to put it all in the past because it does continue. And right. in, in fact, the the resiliency of the of this movement and the determination to not let it get pushed back away from our consciousness has been really remarkable to me. But during that period when it was so intense and daily and visceral, some of the most intense exchanges I had were with men in my life, my friends or colleagues or coworkers who were coming to me. Some of them were people who were on the shitty men list, mm -hmm. in the shitty media men list. Um, some of them were people who were not, mm -hmm. but were scared that they could wind up on someone's list. And they came to me as a person who was writing about these issues, but who they loved and liked and had a warm conversational relationship with. Some of them were looking for absolution. They were looking for me to say, like, it's okay, you're okay, you're good. Some of mm -hmm. them um, were looking to confess. Um, some of them wanted advice about how they, what they were supposed to do. And these were really intense exchanges because I felt for these men. Yeah. I really did. And I was, I am one, I'm actually about as cleanly as you can be 100%. This was the correct, necessary and long overdue right. thing to happen. But that to say that doesn't mean that I wasn't also torn yeah. about what the repercussions of it were going to be. I was always, one of my things is I've always been far more interested in the women telling their stories than in what happens to the men, mm -hmm. right? Like I am not somebody who's like, yeah, another one fired. I mean, if there are violent rapists at the top of companies, like, yes, I think the correct action is they should no longer, you know, have their positions of power. But like, I don't have, I don't want to police what happens yeah. to the guys. I don't want to be the sentencer. I don't want to make the decisions about what happens to the men. I'm interested in women being able to tell full stories of their lives and careers and and bodily autonomy, like whatever form that may take. And those are stories that have just been completely silenced for so long because in part we're fully invested in protecting men's power. And to give voice to those stories disrupts a power structure. Yeah. So I and and it was impossible for me not to feel sympathy, concern for the for those guys. And it was even at the same time that I could feel like this is your problem. Mm -hmm. You you did a bad thing in many you know, and there are different gradations. Yeah. But like what you're worried about, you should be worried about. Yeah. Cause maybe you hurt somebody, maybe you damaged somebody's career. Yeah. And what am I supposed to tell you except yeah. Mm -hmm. And um you know, it's, it's a hard, these are hard relationships. This is the hard thing about any time. It's one of the reasons that we only have mass women's movements. <laughs> like <laughs> the book is actually about all kinds of women's anger about inequality. So it's about how women reacted to like unsafe um, working conditions as part of the labor movement, you know, how women are angry about all kinds of facets of economic inequality, racial inequality. But there's a particular category of anger at misogyny and yeah. gender inequality. And it's very rare that mass numbers of women can come together in their rage at that in a way that's powerful enough to shake a system. Mm -hmm. And the reason it's so rare is because the nature of gender inequality, because it's about the subjugation or oppression of a majority population, which means that every woman has men in her life and every man has women in his life. And they're often some of our most intimate relationships. And to question and dissent from the power inequities that are always in, baked into those relationships means 
disturbing those relationships. It means upsetting them and often doing damage to the intimate relationships we have with the guys who are in our beds and the guys who are our friends and our coworkers and our fathers and brothers and sons. And that shit is so hard. Yeah. And once you see it, you can't unsee. This is the process. Like a lot, we spend a lot of our lives and entire generations of women actually spend lives not thinking about what's unfair because you know on some level that once you really grapple with what's unjust, you can't like you can't unsee it. Yeah. And it troubles your it's easier to not be mad in many circumstances. Um, And when you do get mad and when the view is forced, right, when you're like, we got to look at the scaffolding that's been holding all this up and we got to acknowledge that the game is rigged and that if we want things to get better, we have to change the game. Part of what that means, you have to change the game midway through. And that is hard Mm -hmm. for people who've been playing it already and it was started under different circumstances Mm. but you can't just look at a fresh generation of babies and be like for you the rules are different the rest of us we get like it doesn't work that way right right? if you want to change the the power dynamics you have to do it mid-game and this is what happened during the second wave women's movement like marriages that were entered into in the 1950s and 60s where there was a shared and mutual agreement and expectation that there were going to be gendered roles and that there was going to be one partner who did the earning and the public work and one partner whose, you know, ambitions, public ambitions were not going to be a priority and was going to do the domestic labor. And then a political movement came and opened up educational, professional, legal opportunities, sexual opportunities, the opportunity to live a different kind of adulthood for women. And for some of the women who, like, felt themselves liberated by yeah. these new possibilities – It was like, well, the terms of our marriage don't work for me anymore. And there's a reasonable thing. Well, but you entered into it willingly. I didn't force you into this marriage. Right. And and a lot of marriages ended. Some of them evolved and changed. And and a lot of them ended because they were no longer the, the possibilities had changed. The rules had changed. And not everybody was satisfied with the way the game had used to be played. And that's a version of what we're doing right now. Mm -hmm. If we're gonna say, like, actually groping the butt of your coworker. While not violent rape, we actually it it does it's part of a system that does professional and economic damage to women and to mm-hmm. less powerful people within workplaces. We we need we're going to change that expectation. Then some of the guys who just grabbed ass, not only with the expectation that they weren't going to get in trouble for it, but that in some way it was going to augment their power, like that because their power is connected to a sexual power, right? Like that there were there were all kinds of expectations that were baked into their brains too. And it's like, wait, now I'm going to be called for that? Yeah. Mm. Like, I'm going to suffer for this? Yeah. And it is. It's right. I get it. But if we want to do it, that's what we got to do. Right. I think part of the catalyst for even why Dory and I started this podcast is because we turned to, like, washing our face Mm -hmm. as a way to get relief from our anger. Yeah. And I'm curious, how can our anger... How can we not tamp it down? How can it become part of the way in which we care for ourselves? And, and you know, I think sometimes we're, we're fighting our anger or trying to, you know, find a salve for it. Mm-hmm. And instead, I'm curious, like, can it be a part of the way that we 
care for ourselves. I would like to think that it could be. I think that comes especially from the connection with other people who share your furies. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that it can be a connecting force. I want to believe that a lot of the damage that it does to us is when we feel that the anger inside us is tamped down, that we're not free to express it and that nobody out there is giving voice to it. And it, that's when I think the bad ill effects of anger. I mean, I am not a doctor. I want to make some claims here. I'm just making some guesses. <laughs> okay. But I do think I've, I've been raised with the idea that to be angry is to be sort of poisoned inside and it's going to kill. I mean, one of the most, one of the most affecting things I like the, the things that just has haunted me ever since when I read Hillary Clinton's memoir of the post-2016 memoir, What Happened, mm-hmm. there is a paragraph in there that I cite in the book where she says, and this is in within months of having lost to Donald Trump, yeah. where she said she was so afraid that her anger would turn her into Miss Havisham that she prayed to God to make herself stop feeling it. Mm. Okay? Like this to me, I'm like, oh my God. I mean, fine. She said she didn't want to be just an old angry woman rattling around her house. And so she prayed to God to stop the feelings of anger and bitterness. And I was like, Jesus Christ, this is like six months from like national cataclysm. You're allowed to feel anger. Like God knows people feel angry at you. So like, you know, and, and they're not working to stop it up. Okay. (laughs) And, but the, the impulse in us to not, to like not be angry is so intense and it, that you would pray to not even feel it. So Think about how those kinds of instincts in us that we don't want to be angry, just keep it all inside. And I think that's where so many of the ill effects come from, that you're rattling around your house because you have no one to talk to about it because, you know, if you talk about it, it's like Uma Thurman saying, like, when I talk, I don't like to speak when I'm angry, you know. So I would like to think... And I think that there's evidence for this if you look at the way that some of the activism and organizing and and communication has worked. I think that there is a value in letting that rage out or in listening for other women's rage. Like I think that the rage expressed by Ana Maria Archila and Maria Gallagher in the elevator toward Jeff Flake, while every political pundit may be ready to tell us that that's why, you know, things don't go right in the midterms. I think the value of that anger is so profound and wide reaching because you had millions of women around the country who were feeling this unbelievable rage. And then they got to see it and hear it expressed so powerfully and so beautifully by women who were in the face of one of the powerful men and insisting that he look them in the eyes. And that that has value. It made me feel better. It made me feel worse and better, you know? And I think that talking to some of the activists, for example, some of the, the, there's a woman in Arizona who was very involved in, in um, overturning a, a Betsy DeVos sort of adjacent education law in Arizona and then was helped with the teacher strikes there. And she talks about the friendship she's found with activists, with the women she's been on this journey with over the past couple of years, as being kind of personally transformative, that they've found in each other Mm. a comfort and support network that is part of taking care of themselves to the point where in some cases, she says some some of her friends' marriages are ending because Mm. they actually can't sustain the like, that sort of changed, politicized version of, of these newly minted activists, but that the activists find in each other a kind of care and understanding that better supports their ability to continue to do the work of of being engaged and civically committed to making the world better that takes so much out of us. So I want to believe, I can tell you, and I, I can't, every time I describe this, I feel very torn because this is not like a self-help regimen, okay? I have like a, I'm like, 
such in such a privileged position, part of my job now is to be angry, which means that I get to be, I am literally paid cash money to be angry. So I have a situation that is practically ir, ir, like it's not replicable. And the, the period of four months where I got to write this book, which was a lot of stress and there were terrible things happening in the world, which affect me deeply. And I was angry and sad and worried and scared and stressed professionally. And all these things were were true. But I also was in this sort of biodome, right, where I my job was to be angry all day, every day to put the anger on the page. I was going to get paid for it. People were going to take it seriously, which is the key element. Like I was writing a book that was going to be read seriously, Mm -hmm. whether by my editors or then eventually I hoped by readers, like my anger was going to carry some kind of weight. They were going to print it on a page. And. I didn't think until after I was done with those four months, I was like, oh, my God, I've been so physically healthy during these four months when I've been working like a dog and stressed and upset about the world. And yet I've slept better. I had better sex. I like my relationships with my family were like just good and clear and like in a in a good place. I ate was eating better without ever. I mean, I was not like on a re- exercise regime yeah. or it, like it just was I, I felt good. I felt fully human. And I have to believe that part of that was because I was in this kind of irreplicable position of being a person who could express her anger and was not only not censured for it, but like it it was assumed that it might carry weight professionally, you know, and that was such a, it was, was like just such a strange feeling. And it was really good for me. But it's not the kind of thing I can say. To, that's why I say the thing mm. to do is start to listen to other women's anger seriously. Try to treat it with the seriousness that I could have, that I was, you know, guessing that my anger was going to be taken with. Because that, it's how we receive mm-hmm. the fury of women that that has to change. Not how women put their fury into the world, but how we hear it and what our curiosity and tolerance and the validity we grant it. And, and, you know, but I, I have to believe that anger, in addition to having all kinds of combustible and divisive qual- qualities, is also can be joyful and liberating. Yeah. White men get to express it all the time. And sometimes, sometimes they're criticized for it, but very often they're lauded for it and it, it contributes to their greater accumulation of power. And I think like bare minimum, aside from the fact that it can help them gain more power, like they get to be full human beings. Yeah. I mean, they get to have this facet. It is rational to be angry. It is especially rational and downright fucking patriotic to be angry about inequality in this country. And yet, if we give voice to it, we're told that it, that, that anger somehow per- perverts or deforms the very thing we're trying to, to point to as unjust and in need of fixing. And so just... You know, I have to believe that if we if we altered the world to the degree that women could also express their fury and have it be part of their full range of human expression, that yes, it would be good for us and it wouldn't loom as large for us. It could be integrated along with joy and sadness and satisfaction and fear and frustration. It is a natural human reaction to the world in which we live and part of our engagement with that world personally and politically. But it's one of the it's one of the most powerful of those emotions in that it can propel us into civic engagement and action. And it's also the one that is most instantly discouraged. Mm -hmm. So yes, I think it would be good for us if we could, 
if we could alter the way in which we're all permitted to express it and then, you know, and, and have it received. Well, I think that's a really powerful note to end on. <laughs> um, so thank you, Rebecca. Yeah, thank, thank you, you so, so much, much for having me. Thank you for writing this book. Everyone yeah. should should read it. Or listen to it. Or listen to it. Again, I just got to give <laughs> my, a vote for the audiobook. My dulcet tones. Yes. <laughs> they are soothing <laughs> and yet filled with and rage. And rage-inducing. Yep, yep. <laughs> Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you. So, Dory, last week you set the intention of kind of getting baby stuff organized. And it sounds like you got bow baby stuff organized, but have you worked on anything else? Yeah. I mean, my intention was to get my baby calendar pardon, organized. Pardon, pardon. Yeah. Yes, not like, not like all of the stuff. Right, right, right. I meant kind of the mental stuff. Um, but yes, I did. In fact, I actually have it with me. I can show you later. I just worked backwards. And you created a document? Uh, well, I wrote it down. Cool. On a sh- piece of paper. So yes, I created a document. Um, I just worked backwards from my due date, which is April 22nd. And then th- I also wrote down like everything that we need to do. And then kind of thought, okay, what is the order of operations here? And just sort of worked backwards. I'm very impressed. So yeah. So <laughs> Matt was like, I don't want to see it till January. He was like, I don't want to see it till 20 weeks, which is December. Um, which is fine. It actually doesn't even start until 20 weeks really. Um, but yeah, it's basically just like a, a, a rough schedule of like when we need to have everything cleaned out, when we need to have stuff moved around. Um, so I'm feeling, I'm feeling okay about it. That must be feel good. You yeah, kind of, it does. You know, gives you a little control over the situation. Exactly. And you know I love a little control over the situation. <laughs> I had a hunch. I mean, um, I had a feeling. Kate, how did it go on getting some tips? LOL. Immediately after I recorded the last week's episode, mm-hmm. I went to therapy and I was like, help. My bedtime routine is a mess. Uh, and my therapist gave me... My, my therapist. If you are listening, therapist, I just think you're doing a great job with my brain. <laughs> and you always have cool pants. Okay, so now that that's settled, um, no, we talked about it, and my th- my therapist has a really good way, and some listeners have said this to me, like, it doesn't need to be a concrete every night has to look the same kind mm-hmm. of thing. And one listener said something to me that really spoke to me, which was like, some nights you might need to work late, other nights you don't. Like, calm down about feeling like every night at nine o'clock, you need to be like in bed, lights off, phone put in a drawer. So one thing my therapist did really suggest was like, maybe I do need 45 minutes to look at my phone every night Mm. and just veg out on my phone without guilt. And then when that's done, phone is placed somewhere and I read and I need to read for like Mm -hmm. 20 minutes. And and she was like, read a book. So your brain is not staring at a screen immediately before bedtime. So I have been working on that. And Dory, I also bought one of those alarm clocks. That is a light. Oh, yeah. This is very popular in the Facebook group. Uh Uh-huh. Thank you, Facebook group. I bought one. It's super weird. Is it? It's kind of cool. It's just weird. It's like a different waking up experience. I'm I'm like, what is happening? The lights. And, And instead of just like jolting awake to an alarm... Um, but I really like it. It just slowly, a, a light turns on. That's awesome. And then I turn that off and then a little alarm goes off a couple minutes later. Great. So I'm trying that out. Okay. Right, you know? Good. Now this week. Yes. 
your intention circles back to what we started talking about. It sure does. Um, we need to be consistent with Bo's muzzle training. What, what is muzzle training? He has to wear a muzzle and be a good boy? No, it's sort of like when you crate train a dog and uh-huh. you teach them that the crate is like their safe place and their cozy home and it's not a punishment to go on the crate. Right, the muzzle is his friend. The muzzle should be his friend. So the way you train a dog to think their muzzle, the muzzle is their friend is you put... Um, you know that like Kong liver paste that comes Uh in the aerosol can? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you put it on the muzzle (laughs) and then he sticks his snout in to lick the liver paste. And it's this whole process. Sure. But it involves a lot of liver paste and a lot of treats. (laughs) Delicious. Um, so we have never progressed very far with this. And she was like, our vet was like, you just need to do it for a few minutes a day. And Matt, it was funny when I first, when I brought it up to him a couple weeks ago and he kind of freaked out and he kept getting fixated on, well, how long is it supposed to take? How long is this going to take? And I was like, I don't know. No one can, no one's going to be able to tell you exactly how long it could take. But he seemed really kind of obsessed with this idea of like knowing how long it was going to take. And then he asked again yesterday, well, how long is this going to take? And she said, I can't tell you, like some dogs, it takes a month. Some dogs, it takes two to three months. Like she, but she was like, if you're consistent with it, right. He'll get it. He'll get it. So we just need to do it for a few minutes a day. And I think for me, another thing was that I needed to feel like I had buy-in from Matt and that it wasn't just all going to fall on me sure. to do this training. I think that was also partly why I didn't do it because I didn't feel like he was fully on board. I felt like it was all me. And I just was like, he needs to also do this. So I made him, he was the one who practiced it at the vet. Good work. With Bo. And, you know, I think we will share this burden <laughs> of, of teaching Bo. Raising your dog like you're going to raise your child. I, I want him to, to get the picture that it's not all going to be me. <laughs> that's right. Also, there's not liver paste involved. So that's good. Exactly. But no, that's that sounds like a good practice story. I hope Bo Thank gets you. it. I'm rooting for Bo. Thanks. You know um, what Bo. is your intention this week? Well, to to kind of piggyback on my really positive speaking in the introduction of this episode, I'm going to think one positive thought about myself each day. Ooh, I like that. Because I have been looking in the mirror in the morning and being like, you look fucking dope. Good yeah, for you. you. Do. My skin's looking good. Feeling good about myself. I'm feeling good about my mothering. I'm trying. I can get into negative spirals, so I'm just trying to like get into a my, positive spiral. Oh, can you imagine what that would be like? Just spiraling upward, oh, thinking positive thoughts. Sounds great. I've never had a positive spiral. <laughs> Let's do it. Okay. Let's make that our thing. Let's spiral positively. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I, I, the idea, just having like even a mantra that I say to myself, or just a positive thing I remind myself of every day, I think would be very helpful just in terms of my old friend, self-esteem. That sounds great. You know, we'll see how it goes. I look forward to hearing about your progress. Maybe I should write down my positive thought every day and share them. Mm-hmm. Well, let's see what they are. If they're embarrassing, I might not. Dory. Yes. We have come to the end of the road. We certainly have. Again. Again. Once again. Once again, we're here at this bypass yep. where we say goodbye. Yep. But not for long. We'll be back in your ears no. soon. Um, if you do want to call us and chat with our voicemail, 
The number is 781-591-0390. Or you can email us at forever35podcast at gmail.com. You can also join the Facebook group that we talk about all the time, facebook.com slash group slash forever35podcast. And the password is serums. So many wonderful spinoffs. So many spinoffs. And if you like this here show, please do leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell a friend or a sister or a parent. Or a brother. Or a brother. Yeah. We've had some great just, we had a a recent mini episode with a sister shout out. Yes, we did. Uh, And if you really like us, you know, shout us out on social media. Yeah. And just a reminder that everything we talk about on the show is always on our website, forever35podcast.com. And you can also follow us on Instagram at Forever 35 Podcast and on Twitter at Forever 35 Pod. So now I need to tell you that Forever 35 is hosted and produced by Dory Shafrir and Kate Spencer and produced and edited by Sammy Junio. And we will see you next week. Bye. Bye.